0: So this morning, if you have been with us for even a couple weeks now, um, I've got bad news. Um, if you were here you know, three weeks ago when we talked about how hard it is for rich people to get into heaven, or the past two weeks when we talked about Jesus and divorce. Um, The the bad news is um, the conviction is not going to get laid on any less thick this morning. Um, We are in a high-challenge passage of Scripture that we're camping out in this morning in Mark chapter 11, if you want to begin to turn there in your Bibles, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark together this year. Uh, We're going to skip verses 1 through 10. Uh, That is the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, which we traditionally observe in the church calendar on Palm Sunday. Um, But I preached a sermon on that very passage three and a half years ago here uh, at West Hills entitled, The King We Needed But Didn't Want. And so, um, Taylor, if we can, um, we'll make sure that we repost that actually to our website in the the rooted gospel thread um, so you can see that. And I'll encourage you to go back and listen or re-listen to that message because it provides the immediate context for our uh, sermon this morning, these pivotal events in verses 12 through 21 uh, of Mark chapter 11. This is where everything starts to turn in Jesus' ministry. Up until this point, Jesus has been a rock star. He's been teaching and performing miracles in front of packed out crowds all over uh, Galilee and Judea. Uh, And aside from the religious leaders who have had it out for him all along, the common folk love Jesus. They are crazy about Jesus. He's bigger than Beyonce or whoever's popular these days. Um, I don't keep up. All the hype is culminating here in verses 9 and 10 leading up to this passage with a crowd shouts of praise while Jesus rides in to Jerusalem. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So the crowds are ready to coronate him as their triumphant messianic king. That was on Monday. Now, how do we explain that by Friday... They would hang him on a cross, say, crucify him, crucify him. His blood be on us and our children. Well, it's primarily because of what went down in between Monday and Friday, specifically on Tuesday, the passage that we're going to read here in verses 12 to 21. Jesus is going to shock and offend his fellow first century Jews. And his critique is going to cut them straight to their heart. And so would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's Word from Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 21. I'll read it for us in the ESV on the screen in front of you. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned their tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its root. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we want to hear from your word this morning. We need to hear from your word this morning. God, I pray that uh, my words would be few and your words would be many. Uh, That you would empower me to get out of the way and let you speak to your people this morning that any sense of challenge or conviction we might hear might not come from me, any emotional appeal, manipulation on my part, but um, Father, that we would hear your heart this morning. Um, We want to hear your heart, and we want to have your heart. We want our hearts to be more like your heart for people who you love. And so, would you use your word and the illumination of your Holy Spirit now as we read and it, study it um, to challenge us, call, you in, call us into deeper relationship with you this morning. For our good and your glory we pray, amen. You may be seated. All right, so here's your one big idea for this message this morning. If you want to write this down in your bulletin, uh, I was made to bear fruit. Go ahead and write that down. I was made to bear fruit. So let's be clear right up front. This story is not really about a fig tree. Some of y'all are thinking of all the things that could have made Jesus really mad. A tree? Really? Jesus? This is Jesus' only destructive miracle in all four Gospels. The only time Jesus harms anyone or anything. He takes it out on a poor little tree simply for not bearing fruit, when it's not even the season for bearing fruit. What's going on here? This is a parable. This is a real-life parable. Sometimes Jesus told stories as parables. This one is a living illustration for Jesus to teach his disciples and us a really important lesson. And the lesson is that we were made to bear fruit. John Mark employs here one of his favorite literary techniques called intercalation, better known as the Markan sandwich, whereby Mark takes one story and he splits it into two slices and then he adds a juicy cut of meat right in the middle with the implication being that each of those two stories now affects the other one and the interpretation of the other. And so these two stories here, Jesus' bizarre encounter with the fig tree and his heated exchange in the temple are inextricably linked to one another. And so let's start with the meat in the middle, uh, the temple, and then let's work our way out to the bread on either side, the fig tree, okay? So we go to verses 15 through 19. Why is Jesus so upset here? What, What was it about this temple scene that angered him so much? Well, to understand it... We've got to know a little about what the temple was, or at least what it was intended to be in the first place. The temple was the heart of first century Judaism, and it was their heart because God had designed the temple to be the center of their worship, and it was the center of their worship because it was God's house. That's what Jesus calls it here in verse 17. When he quotes God the Father from Isaiah 56, 7, he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Psalm 69, 9, uh, prophecies of Jesus that zeal for your house, O Lord, will consume me. Now, today we sort of obscure the significance of this by casually referring to a building like this one, the church as God's house. A youth volunteer catches a teenager swearing. Uh, during youth group and reprimands him for using such language in God's house. But the problem with that is the New Testament nowhere treats a building as God's home anymore. All right? So... Uh, track with me here, God's actual physical presence used to reside on earth in the temple, hovering over the mercy seat, I've got the diagram for you here, over the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, housed in the Holy of Holies, inside the holy place, inside the courtyard of the priest, inside the courtyard of the, the Israelites, inside the broader overarching temple structure. And the temple was so massively important because it was the seat of God's very presence here on earth. But when Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, we are told that the temple veil or curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple complex, the rest of the world was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Okay? God was effectively saying, I'm not going to live in the temple or any other building, for that matter, any longer. Acts 7.48, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Instead, God now resides in the hearts of his people. 1 Corinthians 6.19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, and 17, you are God's temple, and God's spirit dwells within you. God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. This would have been blasphemous to, to the first century Jews that hadn't converted to Christianity. So the only building we hear about in the New Testament is the metaphorical one built out of God's people, 1 Peter 2. Verses 4 and 5, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That's why God hates our sin so much, by the way, the sin that resides in our hearts. It's because our hearts are designed to be God's temple now, where he lives, and our sin desecrates that temple like the money changers and the extortionist priest here in Mark 11. Look at what they were doing. They had defiled God's holy temple. Here's how John MacArthur explains it for us Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, were in commiseration with the business people of the day. They needed oil and wine and salt for their sacrifices, and they needed animals. So they had these vendors and they split the profits. This place was a buzz, it was a cacophony of noises, the animals, the commotion. It was a scam. Of the rankest kind, because if you brought a sacrifice from home, let's say you brought a lamb, without blemish and without spot, from your own flock, and you brought it to the temple to give it as a sacrifice, there would have been a priest who would have had to pass the animal. All the priest had to do was say, this animal doesn't pass. The animal is not good enough for sacrifice, and you would be required to buy an animal from the vendors inside the temple at ten times the price then you would also be required to have the half-shekel temple tax in a certain kind of coinage. That's where the money changers come in. And pilgrims came from all kinds of nations when they came in for Passover, and you didn't have the right kind of coinage. You would have to exchange your coins, and the markup was, according to one historian, at least 25%. If you were poor... Uh, You could give a dove as a sacrifice instead of a lamb or a a goat. And doves in their economy would sell for five cents in your local hometown. But if you bought one in the temple, because yours didn't pass, they say it would be $4. I can't even do the math. Whatever 20 times four is. 80 times the markup. This is perversion, prostitution, travesty, extortion, monopoly, noise, traffic. It was anything but a house of prayer. And here's the key phrase in what Jesus condemns about what they're doing that I want to latch on to this morning, because I think when we get to the, the fig tree, it's going to start to make more sense. Jesus says the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer, verse 17, for whom? For all the nations. This passage from Isaiah that he quotes makes it even more explicit. Isaiah 56 says, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, these I will bring to my holy mountain, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The holy God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And So Jesus is so upset here in Mark 11 because do you know where all of this corruption and extortion in this busy cacophony of distraction was happening in the temple? You want to guess? If you take a look back at the diagram again, it was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. Karen, do we have that slide? I forgot to redraw the red circle, but you see out here, the outer circle, the Gentile courtyard. The, the, the Jewish leaders had decided, well, it's not really important that, you know, we respect the holiness of, of that part of God's temple. They're just Gentiles. God had given Israel the temple to be a center of worship, not just for the Jews, but according to Isaiah 56, for the foreigners, for all peoples, so that yet others could be gathered to him. And King Solomon makes this explicit in his prayer of dedication For the temple, when he built it in 1 Kings chapter 8, he says, When a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and he prays towards your house, hear in heaven, O God, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Jeff Lewis, in his book, God's Heart for the Nations, says one of the most ignored themes in all scripture is God's global purpose, his desire an activity of redeeming mankind, the nations, to himself. It involves the active pursuit of worshipers from all the peoples of the earth who will give him the glory due his name. Why would God want just a few of us here at West Hills to give him glory? Why would he want just the few, relatively few, churches here in St. Louis on Sunday mornings to give him glory? That's why he created all of us. All one million people in St. Louis, only a fraction of whom are giving him the glory due his name this morning. God's heart is for them, it's for the nations. So let me just give you a small sampling of God's heart for the nations as evidenced all throughout his word. We're going to fly through these. We'll trace the theme all the way back to Adam and Eve, God's first command in all of scripture, Genesis 128, God blessed them and said to them, what, be fruitful And multiply and fill the earth. Why? Because God wants a multitude of worshipers. He created us to bring him glory. And more people doing that means more glory. Consider God's calling and promise to Abraham. In Genesis 12, 1-3, Now the Lord said to Abram, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Why? He's blessed to be a blessing so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Consider the most important event in all of Old Testament history. God's deliverance of his people Israel from slavery in Egypt. why did he do it? For their sake? Yes, and Joshua 4, 23, 24, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Red Sea so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. He did it so the nations would know that Yahweh is God. Why did God give him his holy law? Deuteronomy 4, 5-7, through See, I, Moses, have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. Why? For their own benefit, only personal benefit. No, so that you would do them in the land that you were entering to take possession of it, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statues, will say, What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh? They're a witness, a light in the darkness. God's heart for the nations is listed as the explicit reason why he blessed Solomon with wisdom in 1 Kings 4. It's why he delivered Daniel from the lion's den in Daniel 6. He tells us it's why he raised up Queen Esther for such a time as this to save his people in Esther 8. Even the prophets, who we typically think of, is sent specifically for the nation of Israel again and again and again echo God's heart for the nations. Obviously, there's Jonah, who is sent specifically to The Ninevites, the Assyrians, these wicked, godless pagans who wanted to annihilate the nation of Israel, and yet God asked Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? It's God's heart for the nations. God told Jeremiah, before I even formed you in the womb, I appointed you as a prophet to whom? The nations. Verse five. So Jeremiah proclaims in chapter 16, O Lord, to, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. And they'll turn to worship Yahweh instead. That's his vision. That was the vision of the prophet Micah as well. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established and the peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. And the prophet Malachi, for the rising, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great. Where? Among the nations. Are you seeing a common theme here? And in every place, every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God's heart for the nations is why, according to the prophet Ezekiel, God judged and scattered and ultimately restored his people Israel from exile in Babylon. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned, where? Among the nations." to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So many of the Psalms, so many of the Psalms, some of our favorites like Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. We love that, right? We all love the first half of the verse, so we rip it out of its context. We paint it on our trendy, artsy, decorative boards or whatever we hang up in our homes these days. And it becomes this personalized reminder for me to wait on God. And we miss the whole reason why God wants us to wait on Him in the first place it's so that others will witness His faithfulness, it's so that I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Our favorite calls to worship, Psalm 96, one through three, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Declare his glory where? Among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Our favorite benedictions, Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Why? That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all Nations, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And as we shift, I I could go on, but I think you get the picture. So we'll shift to the New Testament now, and we'll just hammer that one home for a while. In the New Testament, we recognize God's heart for the nations. is even why Romans 11.25, God allowed for a partial hardening of the hearts of his people Israel, the Jews, so that you and I, everyone who's not a Jew in here, probably most of us, I guess, Gentiles could be included in his covenant promise of salvation. It's why Jesus went out of his way on road trips to detour into regions that other Jews in his day would intentionally avoid. It's why he struck up scandalous conversations with Canaanite women, Syrophoenician women, with Samaritan women around wells in the middle of broad daylight shameful stuff, so that many Samaritans from that town believed in him, John 4, because of the woman's testimony. When the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. No self-respecting Jew in the first century would have stayed in Samaria for two hours, much less two days. But many more believed because of his word. They said, we know that this is indeed the Savior of Israel, the world, that's why 1 John 4.14 calls Jesus the Savior of the world. Indeed, all along, God had foretold a Messiah, not just for Israel, but for all the world. Isaiah 42.6-7, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. Isaiah 49.6, You will bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a, as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth, Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. In the latter time, God has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Even New Testament prophets like Simeon, at Jesus' dedication in the temple after his birth, Simeon said, My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Consider how Jesus himself framed his own mission. In our favorite verses, John 3 16 and 17, for God so loved who? Israel? Christians? The church? God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever, not just anyone, but everyone who believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John 12, 32, Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw who? Christians? Israel? Israel? all people to myself. And God's heart for the nations is why here at West Hills, we remind ourselves every single week of his calling on our lives as well in our benediction from Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So let me just be really blunt, really clear and blunt with us this morning. Your life, friend, is not about you. That's a good thing. It's about so much more than whatever small hopes and dreams and desires you would have for yourself. Your comfort, your passions, your interests. We are guilty in the church, even, of encouraging one another to follow your heart, to pursue your dreams. When oftentimes, that is exactly the opposite of what God wants for us. I mean, ideally, what should be happening, if, God, if the Holy Spirit truly is residing in our hearts and changing us from one degree of glory to the next, then over time, yes, we should be developing more of God's heart for the lost, for the nations. But until that becomes our own sanctified default desire and reality, we are called to chase not after our heart, not to pursue our dreams, but to chase God's heart to pursue God's dreams, his vision for us as a people and for the nations that he loves and desires to save. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's not a promise just for you, friend. Please don't just read your own name into John 3.16 this morning. That's cute, but that's not what he says. God so loved the whole world. God desires that all people would be saved. And friends, we can only recite Jesus' great commission as our benediction so many times together as a church. I will go, therefore, and make all disciples of all nations before we decide to either start doing it and get busy about the Father's work that He's left us to do, or we get sick of bold faced lying to God in church. And we start skipping out of the service early each week before the benediction. <laughs> Before our call to action, before our call to respond to the word of God that we've heard preached, before the practical part, or frankly, before we just go find another church that won't raise the bar quite so high, a church content to just leave it at the level of principle and never drill down to the practical, where the rubber hits the road, the application, the the, the what am I supposed to do with this passage? question. Really, the answer to that question, every week, no matter what I'm preaching, if it's the gospel, the answer is always, go make disciples. (laughs) What are you supposed to do this week with the text? Go make make disciples. What are you supposed to do with a text on divorce? Go make disciples. People need to hear about this. They need to hear the good news from us. If you don't want to hear it here, There are other churches out there, churches that are all about grace, by which they might mean Jesus did everything, so now you and I don't have to do anything. It's not the grace that the Bible talks about. Churches where they make sure when they present the gospel, they never read the rest of Ephesians chapter 2. That it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Because calling Christians to act, calling Christians to account, calling Christians to do good works can start to sound theologically like self-righteousness, and more importantly, practically, it might scare people away from our churches, and so we'll just stop with verse 9 and not call people to act, to respond. We'll call people instead to what James calls dead faith. Faith without works, dead faith. But we'll make sure that we offer the best programs and ministries in town, well-suited to feed your personal spiritual appetites so that Christianity becomes all about consumerism and entertainment And in all the hubbub of the modern day church marketplace, the Starbucks in the library, the fog machine on the stage, somewhere along the way, we forgot the whole reason we're here in the first place. The whole reason Jesus instituted the church in the first place, because of his heart for the nation's to call unto himself, Revelation 7, 9, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from every tribe, every tongue, peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, worshiping Christ to the glory of God the Father. We're supposed to be the people that make that happen. (laughs) The church is God's plan A for evangelism and discipleship, for spreading the news, and he doesn't have a plan B. We're supposed to be salt in a bland world, light in a dark world. We have been commissioned to go preach the gospel to all nations. Mark sixteen, fifteen. Do we consider doing it and designating a small fraction of our tithes and offerings to to sending someone else to go do it for us, so long as it doesn't cut too much into our budget for donuts and a new sound system in the sanctuary? If it sounds like I'm being judgmental and upset, I am. I'm upset like Jesus was upset in his day by what the church has become today. I'm talking about the church in 21st century America. But let's don't be too quick to excuse ourselves, West Hills. I think we need to take a good, hard look in the mirror this morning as a church and take Jesus' warning here, his cursing of the fig tree really seriously this morning? Speaking of the fig tree, let's go back to the fig tree. What is fruit after all? Fruit is a tree's means of reproduction, right? Fruit is God's tasty design for making more trees. Animals eat fruit, they defecate out the seeds as waste, and God has also um, uniquely designed manure as a great natural fertilizer, and so voila, new tree. Seeds are spread, new trees crop up. So just a couple quick things to note here on the fig tree and on this idea of bearing fruit or calling to bear fruit. This tree in verse 13 is in leaf. Jesus says it's in leaf. Interestingly, fig trees are one of the few trees that grow fruit before uh, their leaves begin to sprout. So if this tree is in leaf, in verse 13, it has now passed its time for growing fruit. First century Judaism was past its time for being fruitful. That's Jesus' condemnation of their temple cult of religion here. They should have been serving as a blessing for all the nations for centuries, millennia by this point. God has been patient with them as a people. He's waited. He's pleaded with them. He's forgiven them. He's given them second chances. And now God's patience has finally run out. And so now it's time, as 1 Peter 4, 17 says, for judgment to begin at the household of God. As John the Baptist says, prophecies, even now the ax is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is what? cut down and thrown into the fire. Likewise today, 21st century Western church in the culture of comfort that we've built for ourselves, guess what? God is not going to wait for us forever, friends, brothers and sisters, to be fruitful. We are long past the time for bearing fruit. We've been studying scripture for the past 1,700 years now. Now, Our roots go deep. It's time for us to do something with it. Are we a fruit-bearing church at West Hills? Can we please do away with the excuses not to serve in the kids' ministry? Well, I'm still kind of learning the faith, and I need to grow personally before I teach others. Some of y'all have been saying that for five years, 10 years, 15 years. How much sturdier and taller of a tree do you think you need to be before it's time to bear fruit? Our excuses for ignoring our call to evangelize and disciple others. I'm afraid if I try and share my faith, I won't be able to answer all their questions. First of all, so? Where does God ever make having all the answers a prerequisite of sharing Christ with someone? Point me to that passage, Please. And second of all, if you know the gospel, that God is holy, that you're sinful, that you need Jesus to die and raise for your sins, and that it's by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone that you're saved, if you know that, if you know the gospel, then you know enough. You know enough to bear fruit. Notice number two, verse 13. It was not the season for figs. Literally in this parable, Jesus is searching for fruit in mid-spring, just before the Passover. But as John MacArthur notes, although the main fig harvest was in late summer and fall, small but edible unripe figs appeared in spring about the time of the Passover. Likewise, God knew that Israel would fail to be the blessing to the nations that he had called them to be. God is sovereign. God's not surprised by their failure. He knows his own big picture plan of redemption all along, that the Old Testament was not the season for figs, that he would have to come motivate people in a new, fundamentally history altering way in the person of Jesus. First century Judaism was the spring. The harvest is right around the corner. That's us. Folks, 2,000 years later, the season is ripe. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Luke 10. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You want to glorify God? Sure. Come here on Sundays. Sing songs with us. Let's do that. Yes, spend time in your daily quiet time with the Lord. Those are good things but you really want to glorify God, bear much fruit. Be a reproductive agent of spreading God's good news to the nations. Or if not the nations, at least your neighbors, at least your coworkers, your family, your unbelieving family and friends. The other moms on your kid's soccer team, I don't know what your are mission field is. It's everywhere, really. I do know. It's everywhere. Don't be picky. Remember the parable of the sower from Mark chapter 4? Where Jesus said, sow liberally. Hard ground? Sure. Seed. Thorns? Seed. Rocks? Seed. We're just called to sow and pray. God's going to give the growth. Just sow. Now is the season for figs. Lastly, number three, Jesus pronounces the curse in verse 14. He says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. God is patient, but his patience won't last forever. 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's good, but his patience won't last forever. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The bridegroom is returning, friends. And I'm convinced from scripture that we're gonna have to answer more for the good deeds that we left undone than for the bad ones we did. Jesus left us with a mission to pursue and to actually accomplish before he comes again. Matthew twenty four fourteen says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all the nations. The whole world has a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So here, here's how Jesus puts it in one last parable and we'll close with this. Luke 13, verses six through nine, a man had a fig tree. Sound familiar? Had a fig tree planted in his vineyard And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I found none. So cut it down. Why should it use up the good ground? Are we wasting soil this morning, brothers and sisters? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, one more year, until I dig around it and put on manure And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. God's patience won't last forever. And even while he's patient, our lost friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors, people are dying around us every single day, (laughs) physically dying, without knowing the saving news about Jesus being forgiven of their sins, which means they're spiritually dying, and they're spending eternity in hell because we're too embarrassed to offend them. And so I ask you, church, are we guilty, like first century Judaism, their temple of empty religion, of being nothing but leaves, God created us to bear fruit. It's what we're here for. It's time to get busy. Let's pray.